Good morning, thanks for joining us at ABC Church Online. I'm Lori Camp and I'm the Connections Coordinator. So of course the first thing I wanna tell you about is the Connections class. We're gonna start a new class on Sunday, March 19th. It goes for five weeks and it's at nine o'clock. Um, it's a great chance for you to either get connected to ABC or reconnected, get to know the pastors and get to know some of the other people who are making ABC their home. So if you'd like to join up for that, you can email me at lori at abcchurch.org. We hope you can join us tonight for Marriage Night. We're gonna take a look at God's design for marriage, some of the communication strategies that work and don't work, and have a chance to reflect on how we could improve our marriage. So we hope you'll join us for that. We're gonna have dinner for both kids and adults at 5.30. There'll be childcare for the kids. You just need to sign up in advance. And then we'll start at six o'clock. Dads, this one's for you. We're gonna have a night on March 19th to learn about intentional parenting. It'll give you a chance to learn from some more experienced dads about some of the things they went through with their kids and some of the challenges they faced in the hopes that you can lead your kids to follow after God in a more intentional way. So we hope you can join us for that. As some of you know, I also work at Mighty Oaks part-time. We haven't been able to have very many public graduations since COVID, but that's changing. We're having our first one on March 10th. It's a Friday night, and we're gonna have a potluck at 5.30, and then we're gonna have the graduation at 6.30. If you don't know about Mighty Oaks, Mighty Oaks is a nonprofit group that runs um, programs that are Bible-based for veterans and first responders who are dealing with trauma, marriage issues, or just general life issues. Um, we wanna come out and celebrate their commitment to this program and their graduation from it. So we hope that you'll come out and celebrate with us that night. Thanks so much and hope you have a great Sunday. Hi, ABC family. Thanks for tuning in. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Gerald and I have the privilege of serving here as discipleship pastor. And this might seem like an off the wall question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Have you ever been in an automobile accident? I've been in, a, in at least a couple. I remember the first one when I was 16, I was driving through Fargo. It had just snowed a little bit. There was a light dusting of snow. And as I pulled through the intersection, I feathered the gas so that I could drift around the corner. And it was at that point, shortly thereafter, that I realized snow sometimes makes those light posts that normally stand on the sidewalk jump right out in front of your car and wrinkle your front fender. That was my first car accident. Second car accident I can remember is we had just loaded our whole family up in a van in Southern California. We were headed to Bakersfield to celebrate Easter and we pulled onto the 91 freeway and we hadn't even gone a mile down the road. And all of a sudden our lane went from 50 miles an hour to zero and we were stuck in the midst of a four pile, four car pileup, you know, just rear end after rear end after rear end. And sometimes it gets messy, right? There's, some, there's a threshold, I think, in an automobile accident where at some point in severity, you need to call in somebody called a crash reconstructionist. And they are the ones that come in and they bring their expertise and they look at the wreckage and they begin to make sense of it. They begin to answer the questions that everybody's asking, like, where did this all go wrong? What happened that led up to this being the, the state that it is? What can we learn uh, from what we're seeing here in front of us and how can we prevent this sort of thing from happening again in the future? And if we're honest, I think we can all recognize that sometimes we need a crash reconstructionist to come in and help us make sense of our relationships. Relationships are messy and we have relational crashes as well. 
and they results in a lot of pain. The reality is, is that every one of us is dealing with some level of pain as a result of a broken relationship. And we are therefore ready to stand in benefit of taking a look and seeing where it all went wrong. So this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 3. And we're going to use the, the third chapter of Genesis to help us understand where things went wrong, relationally speaking. And let's allow God to be our crash reconstructionist and to teach us some things along the way. Teach us some things that lead up to a relational crash. Teach us some things about what the wreckage looks like on the backside of a crash. And show us how it is that God's at work and he's willing to restore us as a result of these crashes. So let's lean in and pray and ask the Lord to lead us as we do this. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word. And we pray that you would minister to us by your word and by your Holy Spirit so that we can better understand what is going on in our lives relationally. Lord, would you meet us where we are and would you teach us some things along the way. Be glorified as you do that. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so um, I'm going to read through the first section of Genesis 3. And as we do, as we work our way through this chapter this morning, we're going to find three things. We're going to find that there are some factors that lead up to a crash. We're going to find what it looks like to, to be in the wreckage of a relational crash. And we'll also see God's provision for restoration. So I'm going to read the first six verses of Genesis 3. And these are the verses that help us understand what factors lead up to a relational crash. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight for the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And here right out of the gate this morning, we see that there is a talking serpent in the garden with Adam and Eve. And what biblically we understand that this serpent is God's enemy. And the first thing, factor that leads us to a relational crash is that we have an enemy that's calling God's commands into question. See, the serpent is God's enemy. Now consider the following passage right out of Revelation as an origin story. This is Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. John writes and he says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And now we see, according to this passage in Revelation, that the serpent is the devil. He's also Satan. And the serpent is the deceiver. And it is this serpent 
who is deceiving Eve right now. And we can hear his deceit as he speaks to Eve, as he questions her, as he calls God's command into question. See, we do have an enemy, but that enemy is not that person you're in relationship with. Husbands, your enemy is not your wife. Wives, your enemy is not your husband. And we need to keep our antenna up. We need to keep our wits about us. We need to be wary of the voices that call God's comments into question. And did you notice as we read through that, that Eve actually altered what God said? Listen to her response. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's not what God said. We hear what God actually said in Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. God didn't say anything about not touching it, but, at, but Eve, in her response to the serpent, she actually alters what God has actually said. And we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to either add things to what God has said or subtract things from what God has said. In some way, we alter it. And when we do that, it might be for a variety of reasons. It may be because we just didn't really listen as God commanded things to us. Or maybe we have a bad memory. Or maybe we were distracted. Whatever the case is, we alter it. And as we alter God's word, we careen our way down toward a relational crash. Third thing that we see, the third factor leading to a relational crash, is that we hear a lie. And we see this in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You see, that is a, a, a lie but he couches it in truth. Verse 5, he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That part is true. In fact, verse 22 of chapter 3 demonstrates that that is true. But the first part, the part where the, the, the serpent says that you will not die, that's a lie. And the bottom line is this, half-truths half are still a lie. Jesus said this to the Jews who had believed in him. It's recorded in John chapter 8, verse 43 and 44. Jesus says, Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. The devil is a liar. And when we hear a lie, our sinful hearts are inclined to believe it and we're prone to act on it. And as we do, we take one more step toward a relational crash. The fourth factor is that we become blinded by our physical and our intellectual desires. We see this in the first part of Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now these desires, these appetites, they're, they're God-given, they're neutral. They are not sinful in and of themselves. To desire something is not the same as to sin. 
But we have a tendency to fornicate with our desires. And James writes, and he says that when we do that, that results in sin, and sin results in death. Listen to James chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. As we allow our desires to blind us, as our desires scream at a volume louder than the, the, the truths that God has revealed to us in his word, and when our desires line up as evidence that validate the lie, that's when we careen our way toward a relational crash. And that's exactly what Eve does here. Second half of verse 6 says, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the fifth factor is that we act on the lie. We choose to satisfy our desires outside of God's design. Every time we sin, this is the case. We are so prone to believe a lie. Lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about those that we're in relationship with. You've probably heard those lies. Lies like, a good God would never allow such pain into my life. There's no way he could be good if he allows this pain into my life. Or a lie like, I'm not enough. There's no way that I could ever measure up. Have you heard that one? Maybe you've heard this one. He is not capable of loving me. Or this one. She will never be able to respect me. See, when we couple this with living as slaves to our desires, when we take these lies and we believe them in light of our desires, we choose to satisfy our desires in a way that's contrary to God's good design. And the result is a relational crash. So there we have five factors leading to a relational crash. We have the enemy calling God's commands into question. We have our tendency to alter what God has actually told us. We hear a lie. We become blinded by our desires, and then we believe the lie, we act on it, and we choose to satisfy our desires in a way that's contrary to God's good design. Any of this sound familiar in your life? So what do we do? How do we prevent a relational crash in the future? Well, one, we need to recognize that we do have an enemy who's shooting for our demise. And we, we need to recognize that he will always lie to us. And we need to know the Bible because it's only by knowing the truth that we can recognize a lie. And we can actually use the truth to expose the lie and to guide ourselves back into the truth. We need to receive God's word as it is, not adding to it or subtracting from it. And we need to learn how to interpret our desires in light of the Bible rather than interpreting the Bible in light of our desires. Let me say that again. We need to learn how to interpret our desires in light of the Bible rather than interpreting the Bible in light of our desires. And lastly, we need to learn how to steward our God-given desires according to God's good design. So that's how we can prevent a future relational crash. But what do we do about the wreckage in which we're all sitting because of the relational crash that's already happened? Well, let's continue to read through Genesis 3. And we'll see if any of this description of the wreckage sounds familiar to you. I'll begin reading at Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, until you eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see here a clear picture of the wreckage. Verse 7, right out the gate, we see that we tend to cover up. The eyes of both of them were opened as they disobeyed God, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. You see, immediately they tried to cover up. Immediately upon realizing that they had disobeyed God, and their eyes were opened, and they tried to cover their shame. And remember, prior to eating this fruit, prior to disobeying God, prior to striking out on their own way, they were naked and not ashamed. That's what Genesis 2:25 says. But now they do experience shame. And in response to their shame, they cover up. And what do they use? Fig leaves. Ouch, that sounds terrible. Can you just see it now? And here's Adam sporting our spring lineup in the bright green fig leaf. And then here comes our, our girl Eve in sporting the fall colors of burnt orange and red. But beware, they're abrasive. <laughs> and they don't really cover things up very well. You see, we all tend to try to cover up our shame and our cover-ups always have holes in them. People, though we can't realize it, do see through our cover-ups. And chances are that we're not using fig leaves to cover up right now, but we do tend to use things like busyness, diversions, escape mechanisms. We literally try to flee the area on a vacation in order to escape, or sometimes we just try to flee reality through food, 
or substances. Or my personal favorite, sometimes we just work harder to build a better fig leaf. We just work extra hard in hopes that we will somehow be able to distract people from the source of our shame. These things account for horizontal hiding. We are hiding from one another, even those that are in the closest of relationships with us, like our husband or our wife. Secondly, we tend to hide from God. We see this in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So we know that we've sinned against God and we just can't stand to bear it. We go out on our own and we choose our own way and we can't imagine that God will be understanding. We know that he has a right to be angry with us for our sin and we don't want to deal with it. So what do we do? We hide. We hate the idea of disappointing God. And so we pretend that he won't find us if we just hide. So how is it that you are still hiding from God? Have you stopped reading the Bible? Have you stopped praying? Have you stopped hanging out or responding to the calls and the texts of that one person in your life who keeps pointing you back to Jesus? This is vertical hiding. We tend to hide away from God. The third thing is we, we just tend to blame others. We see this in verse 11 and 12. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see, we just tend to blame others. Adam blames Eve, and if I'm honest, as I read his response, I think he's blaming God. That woman that you gave to be with me, she gave it to me. And then when God turns his attention to Eve, Eve blames the serpent. We just have a tendency to pass the buck. We, we can't take personal responsibility. We always, in response to our sin, tend to assign blame outside of us. When we're cornered and when we're questioned, we just default to assigning blame elsewhere. Does that sound familiar? It should. Humanity's been doing this for thousands of years, ever since this first scene in the garden in the beginning. Fourthly, women experience pain in their family life. Verse 16 says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So here we have in one verse three sources of pain. First, God increases pain for women in childbirth. He makes it very clearly that there will be pain, increased pain, in childbearing. He increases pain in this area because women are most likely to find their identity as mothers. Listen to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. When we boot up in the flesh, women tend to find their identity in who they are as a mother. And right now, God is frustrating this aspect of her life, trying to prevent her from finding her identity, from finding satisfaction apart from God in what she is doing as a mother. Do you see God's loving goodness in this? 
it would be so much worse for him to let her be satisfied in her mothering. And his pain, he introduces pain into this aspect of her life in order to force her to trust him. Secondly, women now have desires that are contrary to their husbands. We see this. My Bible has a footnote by the word for in this. For means against. Your desire shall be for your husband. It's the same word that is used in chapter 4, verse 7, where God is talking to Cain and telling him that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Now that desire was not for Cain's good, it was for Cain's demise. It's the same word here. So these desires that women have for their husband are, are contrary desires to their husband. Women in general want to feel safe. That's what my wife Lisa tells me. One of the highest compliments that I could ever receive from her is for her to look me in the eye and tell me that she feels safe when she's with me. But if I lead in a way that somehow compromises her safety, she will almost always default to taking control and trying to lead our way through life in, in a way that will resume this feeling of safety for her. Even if I'm earnestly listening to the Spirit and seeking to follow His lead. And men, this is actually good news. That means the most painful aspect of our relationship with our wives, when we try to lead and they respond in a way that's contrary to our desires, that means that that painful aspect of this relationship is grounded in the fall. It is, to, we're to expect it because it's part of the curse that God places on the woman. We have now we have women with desires contrary to their husbands. Thirdly, women are oppressed by their husbands. Now men just hate the feeling of being controlled by their wives. And far too often we respond in a way that is not that is oppressive. We can tend to demand that our wife follow our lead or demand that she respects us, even when we're leading in an unhealthy or an unsafe way. And this is not God's design. Two weeks ago, Jeff spoke clearly about this as he unpacked chapter 5 of Ephesians. We men are to love our wives like Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. We're to lay our lives down for the good of our wives. Biblical manhood requires servant leadership, and that means that we die to self and we serve our wives, not oppress our wives. And according to this verse, many men respond to their relational wreckage by ruling with an iron fist. What I say goes. <laughs> and the rest of us, we fall into the other ditch. We may not always rule with an iron fist, but we abdicate our leadership. For some of us, the responsibility of servant leadership is so overwhelming, so instead of standing in strength against the desires of our wife that are contrary to us, instead of leading with godly gentleness, we step back and we let our wives lead. Because we lack the spiritual strength and the energy and the maturity to do it right, to do it God's way. And I think this might be what Adam did here in Genesis 3. I know that's the way I can tend to do it. I fall in both ditches. Sometimes I lead with an iron fist. Sometimes I advocate my leadership. Both are sin. 
Look at what Adam does here. It says in verse 17, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. You see, men experience pain in their work. God, again, dishes out pain in response to our sin, and he, and he erodes that place where we are tending to find our identity apart from God. So many of us men, myself included, are prone to finding our worth, finding our identity in what we do rather than in who we are in Christ. And God graciously adds pain right there for Adam. His job is to work and keep and till the garden. And through that, he provides for his family. And now God is introducing pain there in Adam's provision for his family. And that too is God's good design to prevent Adam from finding pleasure and, and his identity apart from God and to force him into depending on God. The Bible makes it clear that all creation is groaning in response to Adam and Eve's sin. Listen to Romans 8, beginning at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from this bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Did you hear that the, this groaning that is the reality of the creation after the fall, it was subjected to this in hope. In hope, that means that this pain is not pain for pain's sake. It has a purpose. The purpose of this pain that God gives in response to Adam and Eve's rebellion is to force us to find our hope in God alone, not in our vocation. And lastly, we find here in Genesis 3 that the wreckage includes us dying a twofold death, a spiritual death and a physical death. Verse 19 says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return." See, God promised that this would happen on the, when he gave his instructions to Adam in chapter 2, verse 17. He said, in the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And this is a, it's a twofold death. Spiritually, they died immediately when they disobeyed God. There now is a breach in the vertical relationship that existed between Adam and Eve and God. That vertical relationship is broken. Spiritually, they are dead. And physically, they died eventually a physical death after the effects of the fall had played themselves out in their bodies. Death was not part of God's original design for his creation. And this is the relational crash that affects us all. We're born physically alive but spiritually dead. We are born separated from God. And that's the biggest relational problem that you and I will ever face. You may feel like your biggest relational pro problem is a horizontal one with a coworker or with a family member or with your spouse. But the bottom line is, is that our biggest relational problem is a broken breach in the relationship with God. And I'm guessing that this is probably familiar to you. 
My hope is that you can see that we're all in the same general circumstances. We're all dealing with the ongoing consequences of a relational crash. And some of us are still stuck along the side of the road, staring at the wreckage, replaying in our mind over and over again all the gory details of this relational crash. And I wonder, might today be the day that we lift our eyes off of the wreckage and invite God to come in and to begin cleaning up the results of the wreckage, to begin leading us toward restoration. And that brings us to our third and final point here, God's provision for restoration. Look with me again at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? In response to Adam and Eve's hiding, God seeks for Adam. So God seeks us. As we hide, God is seeking for us. Remember, God's all-knowing. He knew exactly where Adam and Eve were hiding. And yet he calls out to him, Adam, where are you? With this infinite knowledge, he graciously seeks after Adam and pursues a relationship with him. And he's doing this with you and with me right now. As we tend to hide, as we tend to try to cover up our shame horizontally from others and vertically from God, God is pursuing us. He's calling our name and he's saying, where are you? Secondly, God is willing to redeem us. Look at verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Scholars refer to this verse as the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first gospel. Right here in the first book of the Bible, chapter 3, God is preaching the gospel to us. You see, there's always going to be a conflict between mankind and Satan. And this conflict would continue and culminate between the serpent's offspring, which would be Satan and his demons, and Eve's offspring, which would be Jesus. Satan will bruise Jesus' heel through the betrayal, the arrest, the sham trial, and Jesus' crucifixion on Calvary's cross. But Jesus would rise again from the dead. And as he does, he would rise victorious over sin and death, and he would thereby bruise the serpent's head, dealing a death blow to the enemy. This verse foretells in general terms what the rest of Scripture testifies about. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen to Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience there many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is what God does to deal a death blow to Satan in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is the invitation today. We can be made right again with God. We can have this broken vertical relationship reunited through faith in Christ. He is the one who never disobeyed God, just like Adam and Eve who, who went their own way 
and ate of the forbidden fruit, Jesus never disobeyed. And he always did what was right as our substitute before the Father, so that when we trust him by faith, his righteousness is imputed to our account, and our sin has been paid for by his blood on the cross. God's plan of redemption is even big enough to address our shame. Listen to what God does here in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God covers our shame. God's solution involves skins. That means an animal gave its life. Blood was shed. And this is a a foretaste of the sacrificial system that the people of Israel would obediently follow according to the law of Moses. This foreshadows the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, his blood shed on the cross, and his life that was freely given to purchase our salvation. Lastly, we see that God spares us from eternal brokenness, picking it up in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and to the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So it was apparently possible that in their fallen state, Adam and Eve could have eaten of the tree of life and been forever preserved in that fallen state. And God, in his graciousness, prevents that from happening. So what at first glance looks like a cruel punishment in God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden is actually an act of grace to prevent them from remaining forever in this fallen state. Do you see that act of amazing love by God? Do you see how God is preserving Adam and Eve by doing this? Could it be that the pain of relational brokenness in your life, the hardship, the difficulty, is not actually a punishment from God, but it's actually an act of love designed to draw you to trust Him and to find your ultimate satisfaction in Him? I think it is. I think God's given us that evidence right here in Genesis chapter 3. So I don't know what it looks like to faithfully apply this message for you, but I would say, let him seek you and find you and redeem you. Your biggest need is to have the vertical relationship with Jesus restored. And that comes by letting him find you and putting your faith, hope, and trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, maybe you need to invite him into your relational wreckage and ask him to restore it. And thirdly, maybe it means that you ask him to to show you which of these factors that lead toward a relational crash you are so prone to do and to ask him to show you a new way. Let's pray together and see what God wants to do. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for these truths. And we invite you to search our hearts. We invite you to have your way among us. We invite you to to show us what the next faithful step is. Some of us need to trust you again and to find forgiveness through faith in Jesus. 
Others of us need you to show up in our relational wreckage and show us that restoration is possible and to show us some practical steps that we can take toward that restoration. And others of us, Lord, we just need to learn some new habits. We need to, we need to better understand your truth so that we can recognize a lie. We need to keep our desires in check and we need to live in the power of the Holy Spirit rather than allowing our desires to rule the day. So Holy Spirit, we invite you here. Would you bring conviction to each one of us and show us what our next faithful step is, that we might walk humbly with you, our good and gracious God. We praise you for making such lavish provision toward our restoration, and we ask that you would help us to walk down that path now. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So as you begin to walk this out, as you begin to walk in light of these truths, you might need some help. You might need someone to pray with you, and I invite you to type out a prayer request and submit it through our website or call the church office and ask how we might be able to, to pray with you. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you. We have our elders who would love to pray with you. All of our ministries are designed to help you work through these realities that we just talked about today. And as a parting comment, I want to remind you of the truth in Romans 16, verse 20. Paul writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And that's our prayer. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. He has not yet done it. So you are still facing his opposition today. And in light of that, may the grace of God be with you. Have a great week, ABC family. We love you.